We've been in this series entitled Us, where we've been going through the book of Ephesians, because Ephesians is largely about us. It's largely about the church. And today we're going to be wrapping up this series as we get really, really practical and learn of the implications of what it is that Paul has been writing about in the first few chapters of Ephesians. So as I was kind of reading through different things about the church, I came across something I thought was kind of interesting as people were comparing the military service to service at a church. And I came across something written by Major David Dixon, recently retired from the Marines. And he said, from day one, a Marine is taught to live a life that's worthy of being a Marine. I love that. And he also said from day one, the Marines are taught to help one another to live lives worthy of the Marines. In fact, if you go to Marine boot camp, apparently if you're in a class and you fall asleep in that class, not only do you get in trouble, but the person who's seated to your left and to your right, they also get in trouble, not for laziness, but for lack of moral courage because they should have done something. They should have woken you up and they should have encouraged you to stay awake. There's kind of a, an, an illustration of this, sort of a negative illustration, unfortunately, comes from the British Marines. This was recently in, in the war in Afghanistan, somewhat recent. In the war of Af- in Afghanistan, some British commandos serving with the British Marines came across this Afghan insurgent who was wounded but not armed. In rage, one of the British commandos pointed his gun at this insurgent and told him that he needed to die that he was going to kill him and that this man would die. And the parting words from this British commando to the insurgent was, it's nothing you wouldn't do to us. And then he just shot him right there. The British commando turned to his fellow soldiers in the same unit and he explained to them, you better not tell anybody, obviously this doesn't need to get out, I just broke the Geneva Convention. Well, word did get out and that British commando did get convicted of murder. Now, military experts sort of studied that case, and they they asked, could anything have been done to have prevented this? And the answer was, well, yes. All it would have taken would have been for one of the other men in this unit, one of these brothers, one of these friends, one of these fellow soldiers, to have simply said, Marines don't do that. We don't do that. The Apostle Paul, in the passage we're going to look at today, essentially says, we don't do that. In light of who we are, and he's been talking for the last three chapters, in light of who we are, we just don't do that. Because here's who we are. We're the body of Christ. And and, and what that means is, we are all citizens, Paul's been saying this in the first few chapters, we are all citizens of this holy kingdom. We're all members of... In this same holy family, we are all living stones in this holy temple that is inhabited by the Spirit of God. So we're this nation under a fantastic king, we're this family under a holy father, we're inhabited by the Holy Spirit, we are a unique community with an incredible calling, and at least part of our calling is to do to others what they've done to us, and specifically, here's what's been done to us, we've been brought into the kingdom, we have been brought into the body of Christ. And so we get to participate together with God in this holy endeavor to bring all things in heaven and on earth under one head who is Christ. 
Paul said, God has held nothing back from you to bring you into the body of Christ. And once you're in the body of Christ, he continues to hold nothing back from you. And that's why he says you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Paul has said all of these things and more about who we are, who Jesus is, what our incredible calling is. And he says, in light of all of that, therefore then, as a prisoner for the Lord, live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Here's how Paul puts it. We're going to end today on this very practical word that is designed for the community of God. Here's how Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, and also verses 11 through 12. Let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Why? There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. In verse 11 and following, it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Uh, Will Rogers once said, you should live your life in such a way that you're not afraid to sell the family parrot to the town gossip. And I think that's true, but here Paul takes it up a notch because he's saying the way in which you live your life, it's not just a reflection on you and it's not just a reflection on your family. It's a reflection on Jesus Christ because it's a reflection on his body that gives testimony to the nature of the head. You've got to be very careful how you live your life because how you live your life will enhance or detract from the reputation of Jesus and from the people for whom he died. Now, Paul here in this passage, in so many words, I think, is telling us since we've been given all these things, called all these things, since we've been made all these things, there are just certain things that, that we don't do, certain things that, that you don't even think about doing. So in what happens in the following uh, message here this morning, I'm going to give us a, a negative list, so to speak, of four things we don't do. And this isn't going to be, you know, real tiny and minuscule and nitpicky and legalistic like we don't smoke, we don't drink, we don't chew, we don't run with the girls as it do. That's not what we're doing. We're talking about things that are broader and more profound 
and, and, and more substantial than all of that, especially as it applies to our life together in community with Christ and in community with one another. And even though the list is given negatively, it's really very positive. A negative list can be very, very positive. Let me give you an illustration of this. Uh, I love, there's only one, one show on TV that I really keep up with, and that's SEAL Team. And whenever SEAL Team doesn't have a show for that week, it ruins my week. Uh, I, love, I love the SEAL Team. I was, didn't serve in the military, but I love, respect military life. And one of the things I like about that show is the code. There's a code. We don't leave our brothers behind. We don't kill out of bloodlust. We don't avoid difficulty. We don't tolerate cowardice. When you start looking at the code, you kind of go, wow, I want to be a part of a band of people like that. Paul here is giving us a similar list, only he's taking it up a notch, and here's why. It's as if Paul is letting us know, if you think being a Marine is wonderful, well, think about being a member of the body of Christ. And as a member of the body of Christ, there are certain things that we don't do. And this is a next-level list because this is a next-level community because of the nature of our calling. And when we start understanding what it is that in light of who we are, we don't do, everyone in their right mind, when they understand the list, should say, wow, I want to be a part of that. And I think you're going to see that as we get into the list that necessarily flows from who we are and who we've been called to be. Okay, with that, let's go ahead and jump into this. What we don't do. Number one, as believers, we don't go it alone. There is an independent streak in every human heart, and I understand this very well. I know that many of you, you understand this. There is a streak in you and in me that says, I don't need anybody. I can do this by myself. And the Bible says, no, that's not an option available to you. You cannot be a lone ranger. You must do community. You must gather together. You must do life together. And it's not that the gathering together or doing life together creates unity. That's not it. When we gather together and do life together in a substantial way as brothers and sisters in the same family, Here's what we're doing. We're not creating unity. We are reflecting the unity that God has given us in Christ Jesus. Look, throughout Ephesians, Jesus is the head. We're the body. With the exception of maybe a a scarecrow or Frankenstein's monster, the head isn't just stapled onto the body. The head and the body, they're organically connected together. That means they share the same circulatory system, the same endocrine system, the same nervous system, the same respiratory system, the same skeletal system, and all these systems, they, they're one together. And what Paul has been teaching is that when you're a Christian, when you're united to Christ, you have the life of the Trinity with you. And so when we live gathered together, doing life together, we're not creating unity. We're reflecting what it is that God in Christ has already given to us, whether we recognize it or not or reflect it or not. Paul drives this point home very robustly in verses 4 through 6 when he says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. You've been given this unity. And so since you have been given this unity, you need to live in step with this unity. And that's why he says back in verse 3, Make every effort to keep, not create, Make every effort to keep or to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. 
You don't have the option available to you to be a Lone Ranger. Now, some of you are saying, well, I think I could be just as good a Christian on my own, apart from the Christ, from, from the church of Christ, as I can just being a part of the body of Christ. I think I'm just fine doing life on my own or doing it from a distance. Two things I want to say to you. First of all, I think you're wrong. And in a moment, I'm going to show you why the Bible says you're wrong. But besides that, you're missing the point. And what's the point? Well, here's the point. It's not about you. Oh, I think I could do better on my own apart from the church. It's not about you. Here's what God's call is to us collectively as the body of Christ. We are to give the world a foretaste of heaven on earth. We are to give people a, a chance to see because in the, in the temple together, that's us, heaven and earth intersect here. In other words, we give people a chance to know the head in the unity of the body. Because people can't see Christ. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, but they can see Him through His body. And you're not helping people to see Christ in unity with His body when you do this independent, I'm just going to live my life on my own. It's not about you. And to the degree that you still think in some respect or another that it's about you, you are giving testimony to the fact that you have needed the body of Christ to help you to know that it's not about you. We need the body of Christ. Not just us, we need the body of Christ to do what it is that Christ has called us to do, and that is to reflect His glory. And God always intended for us to reflect His glory in community. Now here's the thing too. When we work at trying to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, here's what happens. We likewise grow in maturity. This is very, very plainly seen in verse 13. Look at what it says. Until we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And you say, well, how, how does unity and maturity, how do they intersect? Well, here's how. How is it that we keep the unity of spirit in the bond of peace? Verse 2 tells us. Be completely humble. We've got verse 2, put it up there. Be completely humble. Be completely gentle. Be completely patient, bearing with one another in love. That's what keeps the unity. It's not that complicated. You look at what tears apart the unity. As opposed to humility, here's what creates disunity. Pride, arrogance. As opposed to gentleness, rudeness. As opposed to patience, impatience. As opposed to bearing with one another in love, unforgiveness and grudge holding. These tear apart unity because the other things create unity. In other words, what, what keeps the unity that has been given to us is developing a Christ-like disposition toward the people that he loved enough to die for. A lot of times when we start thinking about church unity, here's what we think. We think, oh, you know what? It would be so unifying for the church if we could all gather together in the same room and worship in the same room. Look, I know a lot of churches, they have one worship service and there's no unity. That's not what produces unity, getting together in one room together so we can see a bunch of faces. That's nice when it happens. That doesn't create unity. Sometimes we have this tendency to think, too, if only we had a common project that we could do. Maybe that is a good idea, and I do think it's helpful to stop asking, what service do you go to? And maybe better to start asking, what service do you give? That's a move in the right direction. But ultimately, it's not us getting together for one service or doing one service 
that creates unity. What creates unity, or reflects the unity rather that has been given to us, is developing a Christ-like attitude where we are completely humble, completely gentle, patient, and bearing with one another in love. And as we grow into that that maintains the unity, guess what happens simultaneously? We become mature. Those two things absolutely intersect with one another. But if we're not trying and striving in Christ to reflect the unity that has been given to us, we will not grow in maturity. And so back to the original complaint, oh, I think I could be just as good a Christian on my own, apart from the body of Christ. I don't need to be a member. I don't need to be in a small group. I don't need to do a ministry team. If I just show up every once in a while, people should be happy, and that's good. And I don't know that I need to show up every once in a while because I can just watch things on TV or get the Internet or, or read some books, and I'll just do my own independent thing, and I'll be just as good a Christian as anybody else. And the Bible says, no. That's not how it works. When you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you do not have the option available to you to be a Lone Ranger Christian. That's not in keeping with your calling, and you cannot mature in the Lord if you're not also trying to reflect the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We don't go it alone. You don't get to do that. Number two, we don't get to do nothing Look at verses 7 and then verses 11 and following. I love this. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service. Notice also verse 16. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Everyone is doing something. Either they're training people, equipping people to do something, or they're actually doing something, but everybody in some capacity is serving in one way or another in keeping with the grace that God has given us as Christ has apportioned it. We don't get to do nothing. And the reality is when Christ has given you his grace and apportioned you his grace in a particular way, you've got certain gifts, you've got certain equipment at your disposal. And so when a person who's a part of the body of Christ chooses not to actually serve as a member of the body, when a person who is a part of the body of Christ doesn't actually use what it is that they're equipped to do, guess what happens? Not only do certain things not get done, but certain things that do get done don't get done very well because other people have to do what it is that you are equipped to do, but they're not equipped to do. I, I love this, uh, this story from uh, Pastor DeWitt. His grandson, young grandson, was trapped in a bathroom, locked inside somehow. Mom couldn't get him out. She called the police. They couldn't get him out of the bathroom. Then she called the fire department, and the fire department came in force with several trucks, and eventually, with their axes, they chopped him out of, out of the bathroom. Well, Dad comes home in the midst of the chaos, and he's just kind of wondering, what is this all about? Why, why is this door and the door frame being torn apart when there's no fire and there's no smoke? So here's this messed up door and this messed up door frame and the dad is complaining about it to his friend the next day and the friend gives him some really good advice. The, the friend says, well, firemen only have two tools, an axe and a hose. When you call the fireman, you get the axe or the hose. If you want a door open quietly, call a locksmith. When you don't use what it is that God has given you, not only are there things that remain undone, but sometimes the things that do get done don't get done very well because God has 
given you a particular grace, gift, as Christ has apportioned it. So we don't get to go it alone. We don't get to do nothing. Let me tell you something else. We don't get to remain in our immaturity. We don't get to hold on to that. Much of what happens around a church is designed to move us from a point of immaturity to a point of maturity. I mean, this is very much in keeping with the Apostle Paul's dream as it's expressed here in verse 14 that we will no longer be infants. Now, he's writing to the church in Ephesus, and he says, so that we, that's all of us, will no longer be infants. He's called us babies. And I hope that doesn't offend you because the Apostle Paul actually includes himself in this. I mean, you think about that. He's the human instrument through whom 13 of the books of the New Testament have come to us. He says, so that we will no longer be infants. In other words, he's saying, we, including me, we all need the ministry of the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the pastors and the teachers. We all need one another so as to move forward from our current state of infancy. Now, if Paul includes himself in that list so that we will not be infants, I don't know what that makes me, but here's the thing. The reality that we have to constantly keep in mind is that we've got a long way to go. And for those of us that thought we were close to arriving back when we were 10 years old in faith, if we've been in the faith now for 30 years or 40 years or 50 years, we still kind of go, you know, I've got a long way to go. Compared to Jesus Christ, I'm still an infant. And the reality is when I came into the world the first time, I was a baby. Literally. How many of you when you were born were babies? Yes! Okay, that's 60% of us. Fantastic. Remember what I said about if somebody falls asleep, the two people to the left and the right are also guilty. Okay, wake up! You know, okay, let's hold one another accountable. Let's, 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 let's stay tuned in. The reality is we all came into this world literally as babies, and when you got born again, you came into this world as a baby, as an infant, and this fits perfectly with, with what First Peter chapter one, chapter 2, verse 2 says. Look at what it says. Like newborn infants... Desire the pure milk of the word so that you may grow up into your salvation. We have to grow up into what has been given to us. It's very much along the lines of, I've given you this unity. There is, there is a oneness in the body of Christ, but you've got to grow up into it. You need to reflect it, but it's already given. You've been saved, but you need to grow up into your salvation. Why? Because we are babies. We are infants. And we all love infants because birth is a miracle. And little babies are cute. We love babies. But we also want babies to grow up. It's a good thing. Uh, recently, a couple of weeks ago, I was at Big Ben with Shelby, and it was so fun. And we got to hike, and we went on paddle boards up and down the Santa Elena Canyon a couple of times and camped out there. It was great. And just being with Shelby was the highlight, really. Not just the Big Ben. It was just being with my daughter. And as we were leaving Big Ben... I had a tinge of sadness. Now, those of you who, who know you're about to be an empty nester or one of the kids are leaving, you, you just have these moments where you go, I just wish they didn't have to grow up. And so I told Shelby as we were leaving the park, part of me just wants to freeze you in this moment forever. But you have to grow up. Because what I want from you now more than anything else is for you to make me a granddad by giving me eight or nine grandbabies. <laughs> Because babies are awesome, but apparently grandbabies are even better. And here's why grandbabies are even better. I've been told, when you're a grandparent and you've got your grandbaby and your baby fills the diapers or you can't get them to be quiet because they're cranky or sleepy or colicky or whatever, 
you can take the baby and give him or her back to the original owner. Right? It's like, you just get the cute, but you don't get the mess. Do I have some grandparents here say, yeah, I know, right? It's true. But, when, but, but here in the Bible, we don't really have like spiritual grandparents. It's just more like, you know, your parents are making disciples and we're, we're all babies together in the same little crib. And it gets old sometimes. It wears on you. But we have to help the baby to, to grow up. Paul says, I, I want that to happen. I want us to stop being spiritual infants. He knows what he's talking about when he says infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Paul is nailing down some things about spiritual babies. And the first thing that he nails down is spiritual babies, they're, well, they're undiscerning. You know, they're, they're, they, they don't get it. I mean, you, you have a little baby that's crawling around on the kitchen floor and they see maybe some old food or maybe dog food or maybe the pantry is open or something. They see the rat poison or something. They don't know. I just, everything goes in the mouth. And, and babies don't know, uh, you know, where to put their hands. It's like their, their little finger, put it here, put it here, stick it in the outlet. or what. They're not discerning. It's true also of spiritual babies. Spiritual babies really oftentimes, and I don't mean to be unkind, but it's really true. Spiritual babies don't know the difference between good food and bad food or worthless food. Sometimes they don't know the difference between good teaching that's actually in keeping with the Bible or poisonous teaching that actually teaches the opposite of what the Word of God teaches or kind of worthless teaching that doesn't do any good. Uh, they don't know. But babies are, are not discerning. Also, spiritual babies, there's a second thing that's really true. Babies literally and spiritual babies... They're self-absorbed. You know, little babies, they're just so into themselves. They don't even think to ask any other question than, is this relevant to me? If all a person ever asks is, is this relevant to me and to my life, guess what you're dealing with? A baby. Then there's a third sign of a baby or third reality about babies. And the third reality is they're just shaky. And this is what makes babies so fun to watch because, you know, they're sitting up or they're crawling and fall over. They're, they're toddling around and they're so, they're unsteady. They're shaky. So when you leave infancy and you grow into maturity, here's what happens. You get grounded in scripture and truth. You become a little bit more theologically astute. But also, you stop asking, is this relevant for me? And you start asking, how can I become relevant to God? How can I become relevant to my calling? How can I become relevant to other people? Because all of a sudden, the world doesn't revolve around you. It revolves around serving other people. And so your questions change. And then, number three, you stop being so shaky, and you know the long walk of obedience through difficulties and suffering. Even when things don't go your way, you remain on track. Paul says we've got to grow out of this infancy. And again, you, you can see that there's an intersection between growing out of the infancy, growing into maturity, and growing and maintaining and keeping the unity. It's all about the growth. Paul says I want to see growth because it's terrible when babies stay babies. Which, by the way, I think this is fantastic, just to bring this up at this point, that when the world judges the church, I think very rarely does the world judge the church on the basis of some weird standard of perfection. I, I've never run into somebody that said, oh, Christians aren't perfect. That's why I'm not a Christian. You're not going to run into that. Here's how I think, for the most part, we're being judged. 
And I think this is entirely appropriate. And I think the way in which we're being judged is entirely right and attainable for us. I don't think people are looking at us to say, are you perfect? Are you just like God? No. Here's what I do think. I think people rightly are wondering, does the gospel make a difference in your life? Is the gospel causing you to grow? Are you becoming less of a baby? Because when people on the outside see those who've been on the inside who are spiritually 20 years old, 30 years old, 40 years old, still wearing the diapers of self-absorption and shakiness, they have a right to go, ew, gross. I don't want to have anything to do with that. And the reason that's entirely appropriate for people to judge us like this is because we have one one, one God and Father who's overall and through all and in all. It's appropriate for people to say, is God really over your life? Is he really your king? Are Are you really submitting to him? And is he actually operating through your life? Is the Holy Spirit doing something in your life individually and corporately? And, 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 and is he in your life? Does Jesus really dwell in your heart richly through faith? Is that really happening? Those are appropriate questions. And if people aren't seeing the gospel making a difference and they see us as spiritual adults still, still wearing diapers of selfishness and self-absorption, they've got a right to go, ooh, I don't want to have anything to do with that. And so if you're a believer with a very high calling and an incredible Lord and a wonderful body, a God who's held nothing back from you, don't you think we don't have a right to hang on to our immaturity? Number four, we don't allow others to hang on to their immaturity either. Now this is... This is kind of interesting to me, and I'm not pointing fingers at anybody because I do this too, but it's kind of funny how frequently around churches we get surprised at people's spiritual immaturity. Like, I can't believe they just did that, or I can't believe they just said that. How could they be so immature? And and I just kind of sometimes want to go, well, wait a second, have you not been paying attention to yourself? And the reason I don't say that, but I want to say that, but I don't say that, is because I recognize that that condescension that comes from me is an indication of my own spiritual immaturity. I think that's why Paul says we all need to grow. We're all infants because we all got stuff to deal with. It shouldn't be a surprise that on occasion, actually frequently, there are spiritual issues that need to be dealt with and addressed because the whole foundational premise for us getting together is to help us grow out of our immaturity. That's what we're supposed to do, but we're infants. And so here's the question. How do we, of all people, who have our own stuff, how do we help one another to mature? And the answer is real simple. Speaking the truth in love. Look at how Paul puts it. This is over in uh, verse 15. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. That's the way to do it. Okay, Speaking the truth in love. And we all know that those two things have to go together for us. But here, here, just to be real precise, what does speaking the truth in love mean? Okay, speaking the truth fully, that means honestly. Now, that doesn't mean there's not room for prudence or holding back or testing the waters. Only a, a fool puts both feet in the river at the same time. Okay, sometimes you just kind of, can I go there with that person if they don't respond positively? You don't need to keep pressing. The point is not to get all the truth out. It's to help the person. But you speak honestly, 
And you speak precisely because truth is not a club to beat people up with. It ought to be more like a scalpel. You do the least amount of damage possible so as to bring healing to somebody else's life. You speak honestly and, and truthfully, but or precisely, but you also do it in love. That is, everything you say is bathed in concern for the other person. Uh, compassion and love. And all of us know we have to have both of those things. Not in balance with one another. Not 50% true, 50% love. 100% truth, 100% love. They have to go together. Okay, let's think about this. Love demands truth, always. Let's go back to the illustration of the little kid who's crawling around on the floor, he's about to eat the rat poison. If you love your baby, you are going to say something. It will not do for you to sympathetically sit back and watch as your baby harms himself or herself. Truth demands love. But love also demands truth. Because if you tell somebody the truth, but you don't do it in love, if you tell somebody the the truth, and you do it in a way that is kind of arrogant or condescending or self-righteous, they're not going to receive the truth. They're not, going to hear the, they're not going to hear the truth. You want them to receive the truth. But they'll just harden their heart against the truth. Or they'll harden their heart against you. Again, if you ever bring the truth. And so love demands truth, but truth also demands love. In fact, you might even say this. Love without truth does not accomplish love. And truth without love does not accomplish truth. Both of these things have to be put forward simultaneously. We need them both. So I've just told you something that you already knew. <laughs> you didn't, you, maybe you didn't know that you already knew this, but you already knew that, you, that, that we need truth and love. Okay. So why is it that we have such a hard time speaking the truth in love? Our, our, our own selfishness. Let, let's talk about the person who's soft-hearted. Why does the person who is especially soft-hearted have a hard time speaking the truth? It's not that complicated because you are, you're concerned about the other person's feelings. You, you don't want to hurt their feelings because if you hurt their feelings, they could turn around and hurt your feelings and your heart's wide open to them. Or if you hurt their feelings, even if they don't turn around and hurt you back, you're going to lose sleep at night and you're going to feel all guilty because you hurt their feelings. In other words, the reason you're not wanting to speak truth if you're soft-hearted is because you're at the center of your decision. You don't want the blowback. You don't want the difficulty. You don't want the sleepless night. You don't want to have your feelings hurt in return. Okay, what about the person who is, you know, hard, hard, not hard-headed. That's not the right word. Tough-minded. Suppose you got the tough-minded person and they can speak the truth without any problem at all. Why is it that tough-minded people find telling the truth easy? Because they don't care as much about the other person's feelings. The reason a tough-minded person... I'm just going to tell it like it is, is because you're primarily concerned about winning the argument and letting them know that you're on top and that you're smarter. Who's at the center of that issue? The self. Whether you're dealing with the soft-hearted person who finds it hard to tell the truth or the tough-minded person who finds it really easy to tell the truth, in both situations, what lies at the heart of the difficulty is our own self-concern. That's the problem. See, the, the problem is we have a hard time giving what it is that we all have to receive in order to grow. We have a hard enough time receiving truth and love, but we certainly have a hard time giving it. 
So how in the world can those of us who are still infants, who are called to speak the truth in love, how can we, of all people, speak the truth in love, give what it is that we need to receive, and how can we receive from others who are not giving what it is that we need for them to give? You see the problem? How do we do this? And the answer is not that complicated. In everything, always, at all times, you have to press into the cross of Jesus Christ. Always. And those of you who've been in serious community know this. What is the cross of Jesus Christ? Here, why did Jesus die on the cross? Because we're all sinners and we need a Savior. That was the truth of our situation, and so Jesus died because of the truth. But also, he died not because we deserved it. We didn't. He died for us because he loves us with an infinite love. On the cross, divine truth and divine love absolutely, perfectly intersect. And so in all things, whether we're speaking the truth or receiving the truth, whether we're giving the love or receiving the love, in all things, individually and corporately, we have to continually press into the cross of Jesus Christ. Look. Why? Some of you are thinking, okay, I get it, I get it, I see how all these things connect, I see how growing in unity or maintaining the unity and the bond of peace and also growing in maturity, they intersect because everything presses us to the cross. And that's what God wants, for the cross to be pressed into my life individually and for the cross to be pressed into the heart of our community together. I get it, that's wonderful, it all fits together. But Ernest, here's my question, this sounds so effortful. I'd really just kind of like to listen to a podcast and call it good for the week. Why do I have to embrace all of this? We don't go it alone and we don't, we don't just stay still in our immaturity and we don't just leave others alone in their immaturity and we just don't do nothing. Why do I have to embrace all that? That sounds so effortful. Here's the reason. It's real simple. It's not that complicated. Because Jesus Christ deserves it. We go back to how the chapter started. Remember how the chapter started? Paul says this, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Paul is a prisoner for the Lord. You know, literally, he's writing from prison. Most of his letters are written from prison. Why? Because Jesus Christ captured his heart. Paul knows. Here's what Jesus did. He gave himself up for me so that I could be let go. He was taken captive so I could be set free. He was chained to that whipping post so that I would live an unfettered life. He was bound to a cross with nails. And he was imprisoned in a tomb so I could be pardoned and set free. And when all of that penetrated his heart for the rest of his life, he was a prisoner for the Lord. That's what the gospel did for Paul. And that's what the gospel does for you and for me, or at least it should. And when you recognize that you've been captivated by His love, and you recognize that for good reason your heart's His, and you're a prisoner for the Lord, you recognize... Your life is not yours anymore. And so in light of what he has done for you, and in light of this high calling to bring others to this incredible, glorious Lord, there are just certain things 
we don't do. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the love and the grace you've given to us and the very high calling that you've given to us as your people. I thank you, Lord, that you've held nothing good back from us and the only appropriate response is to hold nothing good back from you. Not so as to win the favor, but to live in keeping with the favor that by your grace you've already given to us. We didn't deserve it, but you gave it. And so, Father, in light of of the grace, in light of what you've done, in light of who you are, help us, Lord, to live lives worthy of the calling that we've received. I don't know what this means for every one of us. For some of us, it means making a step forward into greater community, whether it be service on a ministry team or participation in a Sunday school class or just getting together with two or three other people for some accountability and some small but meaningful community. For some of us, it means starting to speak the truth in love, and we can't even do that because we're not living in community with other people. I don't know how it is that you would move us, to move us forward, but I do pray, Lord, that you would help us to move forward, that the world would see in us what it needs to see so as to recognize what an amazing head we have in Christ Jesus. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.